Today's episode is brought to you by Slater's 5050 and the Vegas Beer Guys. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the 1990s Singles Edition, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, is what we're talking about today. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Back with me, as always, that badass Brit, you magnificent beast, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hello, Tom. Easy boy. Nice boy. Now listen to me. I could get you diseases. You'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I didn't think you were going to go there. I didn't. I, I didn't honestly, you... I have never had more lines to choose from. Yeah, I didn't think you were going to go, Christopher Lee. Well, you know, I he is a revelation in this movie. I everyone is, except the lead characters. But, pati- <laughs> but particularly, I, I don't think we've ever thought of Christopher Lee as as the great comic actor that he proves himself to be in this movie. That's true. And they give him He's all the comedy. Uh, yeah. Not all of it. No, How about no, Tony but, Randall? but his entire part is is it's essentially comic relief. Right. There is, I mean, you, you, there there is a previous prior history between him and Joe Dante, which is kind of quite interesting. It makes me think that he was cast for a rather uh, obnoxious reason. Interesting. So he uh, and it involves sequels, so it's not too much of a tangent. Um, Christopher Lee was in Howling 2. Right. Which was the which the original was directed by Joe Dante and then the sequel was taken away from him. And reportedly and Christopher Lee upon meeting apologized. Joe Dante on the set apologized to him for a, for doing the for sequel, appearing right? in Howling 2. Yeah. But I do wonder if some many people say that Joe Dante is sabotaging his own franchise here. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because so much care is taken in this project. But I might be persuaded that he cast Christopher Lee out of revenge. No, not interesting. Well, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about 1990s Gremlins 2, the new batch. A sequel to 1984, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it was so long before. That's one of the things that Joe Dante... Apparently, they came to him for a sequel. What I find fascinating, first of all, is the fact that this movie is directed by Joe Dante at all. Yeah, it does have uh, the and he, whip of, and he directed of this was taken into someone else's hands. Yeah, because he directed the first one, and these are two vastly different movies. And I just love that he was willing to do that, for starters. Yeah, I, I think the, you know... He's basically embracing the fact that people are unlikely to take this movie seriously because it is a sequel, a belated sequel. Uh, and we talked about this idea in, in our introduction episode 
this idea that, if anything, this movie is a meditation on sequels themselves. I mean, he is spoofing sequels, essentially. From from the get-go. Right. So I think I think a, there's a very conscious choice here to sort of... Uh, and I've talked about this before as something that I really like in sequels, is, is, is do different for different sake in every single instance. Well, so I was going to ask you about that because it felt like in our ranking of these one-off sequels, you were about to rank another 48 hours above Gremlins 2, The New Batch, and I was fully prepared to give you a lot of shit based solely on what you just said about how much you appreciate doing something completely different for different sake. But, you know, I still like a degree of coherence in a movie. You know, when when and when I I think back to what we talked about before with that, you know, how much I like Superman three because it was a very different project from the previous two movies, but it was a project. Right. This is a lot of different projects all going on in one movie. Yeah, coherence is absent from this movie completely, but in, just to me, in the most delightful and delicious way. The results of of the incoherence. Uh, so delicious. Yeah. That you, there's no, I mean, I'm glad you agree with me on this. I didn't want to have to fight this battle. That, that if you just <laughs> look at what is on screen, you cannot say this is not good. But you can say that the movie overall is missing some kind of thread that ties it all together. Right. Uh, I guess that's Gremlins. But as a concept, <laughs> I was just about to say, I was just about to say, well, I suppose that thread would be the first movie. But, uh, but even but, that feels fleeting in this movie. You but, know, you know Graham, that's I think that is the big difference. Like you, you say, well, I mean, we're not going to talk too much about the original, but Gremlins, you know, you ask me what what kind of a movie is Gremlins? I'll say it's like a, it's a dark horror comedy. Right. Done. Right. You ask me what this movie is generically, stylistically, <laughs> I could not tell you. I think you would have to just say hodgepodge. <laughs> well, basically, you know, if someone asked me that question, I, I and I gave them the answer. They would be like, "Okay, okay, you lost me at Hulk Hogan." Wait, I'm sorry. Start over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, I think what's interesting too is because the first Gremlins was like a runaway hit. Hmm. And this movie had a $50 million budget, only made $41 million total, USA and the world. So I don't think audiences knew what to do with this movie. But I remember seeing this movie in the theater and just thinking, wow. It's a riot. Oh, boy, did you go uh, into a vastly different arena. And and I I just... Take a bow because I love I I just loved it when I saw it. I mean, if you think if you think there you know the, the the original is a Christmas movie, it's set in a small town. There is that kind of like it's a Wonderful Life underpinning, right? Which you know is very attractive. Here, it's it's like such a savage indictment of of the previous decade, uh, economically, mm-hmm. socially, that. It, it leaves a really unpleasant taste in your mouth. It's even it's even a savage indictment of the first movie. At times, yeah. Or at least yeah. at least, you know, the pointlessness Maybe of the Maybe not a savage, sequel. but 
maybe it's not a savage indictment, but he clearly listened to all the things that people complained about in Gremlins and said, okay, here. Well, I mean, there there are two, while we're talking about it, there are two very uh, specific instances of that. There's a moment where in the control room of the Clamp office building, uh, a, a group of people of tech people start to give notes on the original movie. On the original, right? Exactly. And are bit and are bitten to death on in, uh, in retribution. And it's in reference to the rules. Right. They basically say, "Oh, what happens if they go into a different time zone?" And and right. you know yeah. whatever pre-internet version of of those kind of uh, fan reviews are that people said that. So you have that moment. You have the moment where uh, the gremlins apparently uh, make the film break. And then you're watching a black and white nudist colony (laughs) movie. And the usher is brought down to Hulk Hogan. But he's brought down by a woman who walks out of the theater to say, no children should be watching this movie, which was a complaint about the first movie that it was too dark and too violent. Yeah. And in fact, the woman in this movie that comes out is based on a woman that apparently left the movie Gremlins with her child in tow to complain about the movie being too violent and too dark. And the child snuck away from her back into the movie good for, good for and hid to watch the rest of the movie. So you have that moment in reference. And then I think maybe even what my favorite is... Is it the Thanksgiving? The Thanksgiving Day speech? Oh, God. I mean, you're, you're throwing up... Th- I, I was going to go next with uh, Leonard Maltin. Right. Now, here's here's the thing. I have some, some personal history here. When I was growing up, um, I bought Leonard Maltin's book of film reviews. And Who didn't? For, yeah. a, for a good five or so years, it was my talisman. It was my film Bible. I didn't make a move without consulting this book. Right. We used to call it the Bet Settler. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> um, and I and I remember, and I, you know, like visually now, I can see the page that it's on, Gremlins and Gremlins Two. I remember remarking on, hmm, he didn't like the original Gremlins that much, but he gives a really good review to Gremlins Two. That must mean that it's a better movie, because Leonard Maltin is never wrong. <laughs> At least that's what I used to think. Right. And only later did I find out that the reason that he gives the second movie a better review is because he's fucking in it. That's what makes it a better movie for him. He is fucking in it. (laughs) Talking about how shit the first movie is. Oh, that's funny. So um, that was was always interesting to me um, that, you know, I didn't realize the context of in fact, he was giving himself a good review. Exactly right. So, I mean, normally when you see uh, Leonard Maltin in a movie, he's apologizing for anti-Semitism in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Right. So, this is this is a nice departure from that. Well, and I was just gonna say because Looney Tunes are prevalent throughout this movie, either by sound or by sight. <laughs> this movie start. This movie starts off with. Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. This movie announces clearly what you are about to get into and what you are in store for, which is kind of a stroke of genius, I think. It's one of the... I, 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 there's a separate category for the opening of this movie, which is 
movies where you have forgotten the way that they begin. And it usually involves yeah, animation. Right. Grease is the one I'm thinking of. Every time I uh -huh. rewatch Grease, I forget that it begins with a very long cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> Up to the point where I am watching where I am thinking, am I watching a cartoon version of Grease? And it happens every time. Every single time. And with this one, <laughs> I, I was I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting what it, it you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics in that first in the first second of the movie. It's like, mm -hmm. is this a loop? Okay, so Warner Brothers are the studio. Okay, I got that. Yeah, yeah, that's the studio. I get that. But this is right. the Looney Tunes logo. This is not a Looney Tunes, nor is it an animation. Okay. Oh, it's the cartoon before the movie. Okay, that's a time-honored Warner Brothers tradition. Except it's part <laughs> of the movie release. It's not before the movie. It's in the movie. Um, <laughs> Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny are arguing with each other. They're talking to the audience. They're talking to the film. Okay, so this is going to be a very self-reflexive movie that, that talks about itself and to itself. Um, like, that's, that's the best I can do with that opening. Oh, well, and best you did do with it. You wrung that towel, my friend. Because... I mean, we don't get many callbacks <laughs> to this. Like you, you mentioned, sound. We get that. We get the Tweety Bird sound effects when someone, when one of the Gremlins gets. Oh, knocked there's out. just yeah. There's all kinds of sound effects from from these Warner Brother cartoons throughout the movie. Yeah, and we get and we get the whole idea of like it's using the idea of the way that Looney Tunes characters would talk to the animator and like break the fourth wall constantly. Right. But that's a very embedded thematic thing or stylistic thing. Mm -hmm. And then Daffy Duck turns up at the end of the movie to kind of tie it all together. To go Ferris Bueller on us. I had that exact note. I was like, in the 80s, people <laughs> You're still here? really liked to talk to you in the credits in movies. <laughs> uh, which is, it's just like, it's something that has gone away because you, oh, you're, you know, I mean, not just now in the time of COVID, but you you really are hedging your bets if if you think that people are watching this in a movie theater. Right. Well, and so I got a little tidbit of juicy information for you. I want to know if you knew this. You have this bit between Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck at the beginning, and then you have a soaring shot over New York. Yes. Do you remember that? Do you know what that shot's from? No, but I am willing to believe it wasn't from this movie. Correct. It's unused footage from Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. No. Yes. <laughs> and so how and how how consciously do you think that is in there? Because I mean, pretty soon after this we'll see a clip from from Rambo First Blood Part 2. Right. So is it specific I mean there must be there must be endless shots of new york you could have used well that's the thing are they are they specifically going no i want it a shot from the <laughs> shittiest sequel that exists <laughs> I, I i can't speak to that i i i have no idea <laughs> but i do find it delightful and wait a minute wait a minute they didn't use that shot apparently not in superman 4 like, that shot looks really good. I've got a note about how impressive that looks. <laughs> there is nothing that good in Superman 4. I have a note about how good it is. That's great. Well, I just, I was just like, hey, that's a pretty impressive, 
you know, pretty impressive shot. That just goes to prove the uh, previously stated theory that that there is a good Superman four that it was entirely left on the cutting room floor. Uh, um, you keep pitching that, and I don't think <laughs> I don't think I'm not buying it. No, I don't think an hour more of that movie is going to help at all. <laughs> If it was just a just an air, if the whole movie is just an aerial shot of New York, yeah. <laughs> you are forgetting that they ran out of money. So what? I think whatever was cut was cut for a reason. Oh yeah, and we I guess we can't go back at this point. And... So, but you know what I do? So the other thing that I just find completely fascinating about this movie, we are in a bizarre time right now where Donald Trump is the leader of this country. And when you go back to movies of this time, Home Alone 2, this movie, I mean, there yeah. there are countless examples of characters based on Trump. This is how much this man has been in our consciousness. Now, this particular character is every bit as much Ted Turner as he is Donald Trump, but... Yeah, absolutely. But I, I I marvel at how much this real estate developer has is I mean he's in our pop culture and for yeah. decades and now running well, the character the, the character we're talking about is a character called Clamp. Right. Which is already not too know, much a, of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, it's not a it's not a big stretch. You you know, he's a property developer synonymous with a famous New York building. Um he uh when you even the like the font of the books that you see that he's written, yeah, it looks like it looks like art of the art deal, of the and deal that right? Kind of lettering. So his name is Daniel Clamp. So even his first name starts with a D, Daniel Donald. Yeah. It's not you know. But aside from that, you know what interests me, and I, I made a note about this that, um, like. An unusually sympathetic character. You're right, right. Because there's a there's a moment about midway through the film where we just kind of see him alone in his office, and he's this kind of tragic figure. He just doesn't know what to do with he himself. He has no, yeah, he has nothing to do. And you know, we know all these things now about Trump. You know how you know his just you know the the racism the the rampant egotism the sexual practices all those things but this seems to be like like a basically like a a small town you know like a, a small town dreamer trapped in a big city body body yeah. yeah because once he gets the chance to to like um you know once once he gets to engage with the idea of what he calls the traditional community thing mm-hmm. it gives him a sense of purpose and direction and, you know, we know from our vantage point that that is giving Trump way more credit. Than he than deserves, that is, right. Trump is not a man who has a character arc. No. This character has a way better, more character dimensions than the actual president, current president of the United States. Um, so it's just it's just interesting, you know, like, to me that, that Joe Dante doesn't, well, he doesn't take the easy route with anything in this no, movie. But no, no. De- even in characterizing this what could be this kind of Scrooge-like figure. Right. Um, you know, like, like well, the contemporary example would have been Bill Murray and Scrooged. Right. Basically the same character. Um, he's sort of, he's multidimensional and just kind of, you know, you, you really feel for him. Yeah. 
I, I think it's a, a, a fascinating tightrope that they're able to walk. And more than anything, I think it's based on a really great performance by John Glover. Uh, he's just who I feel like has played these characters before, since, all the time. He's so good. All right, I'm, I'm going to stop us right there. We're going to take a quick break because otherwise we're going to go on forever. Uh, stay tuned, everybody. We're going to be right back and we'll continue with Gremlins 2, the new batch, right after this. Look, people, we're living in strange times. We know that, don't we? Of course we do. People don't even know what to do with themselves. We're getting stir-crazy. Well, get outside and get yourself some great food, I say. You need to go to Slater's 5050 and Point Loma's Liberty Station. It's time to treat yourself to booze, to beer, to burgers, and more. They have their full menu, people. Their full menu, I say. How many restaurants do you know that are doing that? Most places are doing a quarter of their menu, probably. Some might be doing a half. Maybe a few have got three quarters of a menu. But Slater's 5050 has their full menu, including their signature 5050 patty. It's half ground beef. It's half ground bacon. It's 100% delicious. What more could you possibly ask? Worried about social distancing? Well, it is in place, people. Tables are separated, and the staff will always be seen wearing masks. You're out of excuses. Get off your keister and come on down to Liberty Station's own Slater's 5050. Indoor dining available. Outdoor dining available. Bring the family. Bring your dog. Come enjoy the normal again. Good day to you. I said good day. And we're back. We're here talking about Gremlins 2, the new batch. Tom, we just spent a great deal of time devoting to how much Donald Trump is in our consciousness and in sort of in this movie, but also in our consciousness, certainly at this time and in this movie, is Rambo. Yeah. <laughs> and the First Blood movies and its sequels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, And it kind of harkens back to this idea of spoofing back on sequels you know yeah it comes out of the gate doing that um this is this is uh, one of the actually rare instances in the movie where we get a callback to a plot device from the original movie which is mogwai watches a movie on tv or gizmo watches a movie on tv uh he you know enacting it out he saves the day right uh but in the original movie it was a clark gable movie it was a it was there was a was black it? and white Clark Gable. I think it happened one night. Something something very classic, classic Hollywood for sure. Rambo First Blood Part Two, right? You know, it's if 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 you know Gremlins Gremlins the original is aspiring to be classical Hollywood, uh, or at least looking back that way. Then this movie is about the loss of that. Well, and it's certainly... As represented by Rambo First Blood Part Two. Yeah. And and the other thing that's fascinating to me is this movie firmly plants itself in the time it's in. It has no interest... Yeah, and the, and the media culture that it's in. Exactly right. It has no interest in being viewed in later years 
with the idea of it could take place at any time. No, it takes place exactly when it takes place. Yeah, I don't think... I think that's got to be a deliberate choice. Uh, I don't think they were thinking Hulk Hogan would be a timeless cultural figure when they cast him in this right. movie. <laughs> right, To appear as himself with jokes that only work if you know who Hulk Hogan who is. Who he is. <laughs> And what his reputation was in 1990. Only. And that's why I had said in our in our introduction episode this idea of, could you imagine a 15-year-old watching Gremlins 2, the new batch, maybe without ever having seen the original, no frame of reference for anything? Yeah. I mean, they, they must think this is the biggest piece of shit in the world. And yet we're sitting there earnestly looking in their faces saying, no, this movie's great. You don't understand. Yeah. I, so is th- is this a movie just for us, for people of a certain age? or It's an interesting question because to me it's part of, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a movie that, that is anti, like anti-1980s, early 1990s culture. Mm-hmm. It, there's no aspect of culture that goes of, of the contempt then contemporary culture that goes unmarked in this entire movie from health food to conglomerates to cable ver- bad cable versions of good movies right. um cable news yeah people being evic- you know people being evicted from their homes um so it goes it's all part and parcel with that um and I think there are just one or two moments when, you know, you just get too specific with, you know, with Leonard Maltin, with Hulk Hogan. These are people, I mean, Hulk Hogan especially, he's be you know, he, Leonard Maltin is like, okay, he wrote a bad review of Gremlins. That's why we have him in the movie. It's an in-joke. Yeah. You can kind of explain that pretty easily, even if you don't know. You just go, oh, yeah, he was the, you know, Roger Ebert or whatever of his moment or or whatever the kids, I don't know, uh, PewDiePie or whoever, the uh, Ryan, the kid who avoids <laughs> toys. He's like that, but with movies. With Hulk Hogan, you're like, well, I mean, it'd take a long time to explain why he was so popular, but <laughs> you could go, yeah, he was would, popular. Yeah, it, it's like a, why is he in the it movie? It would take because a hot he minute. was popular. That's it. Right. There is no other reason for him to be in that movie. So there are moments where it just tips the balance completely where you're like, this was a, in retrospect, this is a, this is a bad choice because I mean, you know, I understand having John Astin TV's Gomez from the Adams family in a cameo. Right. That makes total sense. This movie is looking, you know, melancholic in, you know, in a melancholic way, looking backwards about how TV and movie horror has become crap mm-hmm. because of television, because of video. And so when you cast someone like John Astin, when you get an actor like uh, Robert Prosky, who bears a striking resemblance to Grandpa Munster, even before <laughs> you put him in the Grandpa Munster outfit. But even, right. I was just going to say, even before he gets the makeup on. Playing like a, a failed 1960s Edward Morrow type. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that all fits into the logic of the movie, and Hulk Hogan doesn't. <laughs> and so there, there are a few moments where it's like, uh, where it it doesn't work and it it, it screws itself. 
because you know it can it can never leave 1990 as a movie. Yeah, yeah, right. But then there there are other moments where you're like, oh yeah, well if you know you just a little bit of context, you can figure this out. It, it it makes allegorical sense. Well, and it's interesting too, even in say uh, the choice of casting, like you have Long Duck Dong and. Caroline from Sixteen Candles are both Christopher in this movie. Lee for fuck's sake. I don't know why I use John Aston Christopher before Lee. Christopher Lee to talk about classic right. horror. Yeah. You've got fucking Dracula <laughs> Filmed filmed in ex- using exactly the same shot that Terence Fisher used to introduce Dracula. Exactly right. Stunning. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. And so everything in this movie is is framed exactly within the year it takes place in and, you know, not just the decade before it, but because you have Christopher Lee, but there's a reverence. It feels like there's a reverence for what was lost or what we were losing, what we lost in the 80s. Yeah, and, you know, they even talk about colorization of old black and white movies. Mr. Wing gets a real estate offer via, via, you know, VHS and... Mm-hmm. You just say, keep, go ahead, keep the keep TV. Keep the TV. It's be- beautifully done. Um, also, this is a world where scientists who work in the building go and look for animals downtown in alleyways. And that was that was that was interesting, you know, because the the you know our two of our buzzwords are when we talk about sequels: inversions and coincidences. Mm-hmm. We get two big ones ten minutes into big, the movie. Big, 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 big. Yeah, we're suddenly in New York. The first movie was set in a small town. We're now in... The kids from the small town are now in New York. That's a classic sequel trope, by the way, of... Yeah. Transplanting to the big city. And then we get the, the uh, you know, the seemingly irreconcilable coincidence of Mogwai ending up in the same building... In that building. <laughs> ...as his former <laughs> right. owner. Right. But the way that's explained is part of the satire of the movie because... It's a conglomerate. Mm-hmm. This company has so many different divisions that that are all organized within one place. That gizmo could go nowhere but there. Yeah, that's, I think, <laughs> right. ultimately the idea. So it kind of plays with both sides of that in a way that I think is actually kind of interesting. You know, for just a moment, I also want to talk about some of the things that are referenced or that you see in this movie are, you know, <laughs> I think it's hilarious that they go to a Canadian restaurant where the servers are dressed like Mounties. This movie is so fucking good at taking what is a like a, a casual offhand gag and making it a complete visual reality. Right. And the Canadian restaurant where they clean fish at your table... <laughs> Becomes that you know they, they were like they, they were like let's not let's not end with this joke right let's end with the joke of a mountie serving a moosehead <laughs> and I guess you know this That's, is where it's like but also maybe the appropriate um, maybe it reference is. point because but, this is like something you get in a Looney Tunes cartoon but there's also strange you know there there are things that I forgot about that I see in this movie Everything. like what. When they're at that dinner, there's a jolt cola on the table. When they're inside the building and people are trying to get soft serve uh, yogurt or 
Is it yogurt? But anyway, yeah. it was it was penguins. penguins. And I for, I forgot that there was penguins, you this, know. This this is my this is the main reason why I don't think Joe Dante was trying to do a number on his own franchise. This is a commonly held belief in fan culture that he's trying to kill off his own franchise here. It's just the care and the detail with which this admittedly unhinged fictional universe is created. Right. I don't think you put that effort in. I don't think you have the the whole subscript of automated announcements in the building. I would just love to read a transcript <laughs> of all those announcements. Cause I, oh, my favorite, my favorite by far is when he walks into the restroom and you hear, Mr. Welcome to the men's room. <laughs> my fav- my, I think my favorite is, your car is old and dirty. Yeah. <laughs> Please remove it from the parking lot. And there's, there's a ton of those. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole sub film going on with sound effects. We have every time the doors open, it's the sound of the Star Trek doors. Yes, right. Would they do these 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 stock library effects to beautiful? So I just don't think you put that amount of effort into your filmmaking if you're trying to right like if you're basically trying to do the producers with a movie. With a movie, right. Which and, is what a lot of people think is happening. Oh, I just... I, there's no possible way. Yeah. Because when you see, for instance, a group of animals, you, did, you didn't realize how funny a camel running in a hallway is <laughs> until you see this movie. And it's like a group of animals escaping and this lumbering camel. And I had to stop the movie. I was laughing so hard. It almost gets to the point where it is, it is in your face... Uh, pointless. Oh, yeah. The mime artists who are being arrested when he comes out of jail. I was just going to say the mimes being arrested. That is linked to nothing, and yet it makes sense within the frame of this strange anarchic Strange tale. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) When you, you, it's interesting that you mention you know things that that you've forgotten. There's a uh, there's a, a a sketch by Key and Peele that I wanted to talk about. I was just gonna bring it up. Uh, this is you can't talk about this movie without talking about that sketch. Well, it's based on the principle that you've basically whoever you are, if you've not seen Gremlins two for a while, you've forgotten what a batshit crazy movie this is. Right. <laughs> and the, the so the premise of the sketch is that. Uh, they're writing Gremlins 2, they're in the writer's room, and a Hollywood sequel doctor comes in and makes everyone invent their own gremlin, and everything that they say makes it into the movie. Right. Despite the pro- protestations of the head writer. It's, I mean, it's it's hilarious, and then they make a joke about Back to the Future 3, and I'm like, these people are on my level. Yeah, right. <laughs> but afterwards, I was like, you know, it's fun. it's hilarious and true, but it's not the full story. You know, I, I think I, I I mean, how do you mean? I love that idea of like, you know, imagining how all this stuff was invented by in the writing Got of into it. the movie. But I think the writing of right. it was more like, you know, how can we purposefully do something different, strange and funny with this basic well, it's I, funny template because... of a creature that we have? Yeah. That, that sketch itself makes it seem as though it was haphazard nonsense. Exactly. But the movie itself feels more as though Joe Dante 
it's interesting because I want to use the word sinister. Yeah. Because I feel like it's appropriate, but it's sinister with humor. What, what, you know, something that really interested me, and I, you know, I don't know if people have talked about this before, but I really noticed how sanitized the violence is in this movie compared to the original. Right. Like, whenever you do see violence, it's kind of like slime and gunge rather than blood and guts. The gremlin in the paper yes. shredder is kind of a perfect example. Yeah, exactly. And if you equate that one to the original movie of either the gremlin in the microwave or the gremlin in the blender. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what I thought when I was watching those scenes. But yeah. This one is bent towards comedy. But the trade-off is... Because but, like you said, because like you said, it's more slime. In the first movie, you feel like you're seeing blood and guts. Yeah, and it's more... It's more... Visceral. It's more more visceral, visceral horror. But I think my point is that what Joe Dante does is actually very skillful where you sanitize the, the violence and the gore and the horror, but you keep the fucked up weirdness. Mm-hmm. You just you you just put it in and you just you just have that, you know, and that is something that they carried over from the first movie. There is a fucked up weirdness about this movie that's undeniable. The movie ends with an interspecies wedding. Yeah, <laughs> that is not that is not a family movie. No. Whereas, but every you know, like, because I, 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 you know, I didn't want to be like lured into thinking, oh, you know, they're doing what a lot of movies in this period are doing, where they're trying to sanitize their franchise, make it as family and kid friendly as possible. That's definitely going on, at least in the marketing. But you lose nothing of the of how of how screwed up. This is, you know, this concept is. Yeah. Even though what the you see is not thing, that explicit. And the fascinating thing is that the first movie was rated PG <laughs> and is one of two movies that gave birth to the PG-13 yeah. rating. And this movie is PG-13. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so... So there's so much at play both in the movie and outside of the movie directly related to what you were just talking about. And- and it still has a really heightened sense of the grotesque. Like, not all yeah. horror is about gore. You know, that the scene that almost made me physically sick is the microwave with Marge scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, the woman hosting a cable microwave cookery show. And just the combination of food that she's talking about on the top bologna. of the gremlins being in that food. It made me, like, physically wretch. (laughs) I mean, and that's a satirical comment as well, but it's, it's, you know, it's like a scene from Theater of Blood or something. You know, it's using other things other than uh, violence, bodily violence, to be incredibly grotesque. And I think I maybe, I don't know if Joe Dante's got the credit for that, but it's why he's such a good director of family and kid movies. Like small soldiers mm-hmm. and you know those kind of movies, right? Because he can, he can pull that off that trick. Yeah, he can toe the line. Definitely. All right, let's take another break, and then we're gonna come back and we'll finish up with Gremlins too. Uh, I have more to say about Tony Randall more than anything. <laughs> All right, stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back right after this. 
I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beer. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back. We're here talking about Gremlins 2, the new batch, the 1990 sequel, directed by Joe Dante. You know, when we left, I said I wanted to talk about Tony Randall, but you know what we should talk about? What's that? We should talk about whether or not Phoebe Cates and Zach Galligan even need to be in this movie. Because we've talked about this movie a lot, and we haven't brought them up. Yeah. Hmm. Very good question. Um... I'm f- I'm generally fine with it. I remember thinking, okay, so they're in the big city, but they're talking about how they've moved to the big city and they don't have any money. That's all. That's just about all right. Mm-hmm. It's better than how it happens in Short Circuit Two, for instance. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the, the, they. I mean, but they feel a little but, utilitarian, don't they? Like they don't well, have to be purposefully, there. Purposefully, I I don't buy. You know, they try and make a kind of love triangle. Um, right, and I think that falls flat on its face. There's just no the, room it, in the it's, movie for it's, any yeah, kind it's of character not, development from them. There, there's no need for that subplot. There, no, there, there. I mean, it's related to the fact. It's related to the satirical aspects that that um, you know his boss is this kind of '80s woman. Like if 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 you Google imaged '80s woman, you would get this one. Right, um, but. Beyond that, it just kind of like that that storyline never goes anywhere. The jealousy doesn't feel like it amounts to anything. Where where it really comes into its own is in those moments where Joe Dante's specifically making a point about how the sequel fails to recreate the magic of the original. Right. That's where they become useful. Okay. The the Abraham Lincoln story which we started to talk about. Oh, I I it's so pure magic yes. to me that they take this thing from the first movie where her dad dies in the chimney on Christmas night. And it's so it's, you know, a lot of people, I guess, were up in arms about that scene and how dark it was. But I just think it's pure magic, this idea. Uh, and it's, you know, Phoebe Cates is so good in the original yeah. movie when she's giving that speech. And then she's so great in this movie spoofing that speech. Well, it's just that idea. It's like, you know, trying to do the same thing again doesn't work, which is such a great metaphor for for s- sequel writing. For sequel and writing, it, and yeah, as exactly. you say, it's really well performed because she's trying. She's going through it at speed, and you know, 
everyone is like saying, no, we don't have time for, we really don't have time for this right now. We don't <laughs> yeah, have time you can see for this moment. Billy and they also do it when it comes to, you know, uh, let's remember the rules, remember the rules, what happens? And they, oh, what are they again? And I think that's a brilliant piece of writing because it's like, it's like, this is one moment where the characters need to remember something that you also need to tell the audience at the same time. Right. Uh, so I said, and, and it was full of these kind of, you know, that they are utilitarian. They're also there for kind of narrative efficiency. Sure. Because you'd have to reintroduce the whole. But it's funny to me in those moments, because when he says, just remember the rules and she goes, oh, God, the <laughs> rules. What are the rules again? I'm thinking, how could you forget the rules? I mean, you were flashed by a gremlin while working in a bar. It, it, it was a major event in your life. And we see that again, even though it's not the same gremlin, which is fucking weird. I know. How, <laughs> just <laughs> the same exact thing. But what makes it great is her reaction yeah. to it. That it happened a second time. Well, and also, you know, that they, they can be the barometers of how different this movie is from the original. Because at one point, I mean, she accidentally, Phoebe Cates accidentally takes the wrong gremlin home, thinking it's Mogwai. Yeah. And her explanation to why she thought it was him is like, well, maybe this is what New York did to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a great, I mean, such a piece of bullshit explanation. But, you know, a self-conscious bullshit explanation. It's like, okay, let's tie it to the idea of, of small towners moving to the big but city. But all it does is give them, dramatically, story-wise, it gives the the gremlins enough time to, to go through metamorphosis. Where where I think, I, I, remember, I remember thinking this, that... Uh, even though they're here in the movie on a very, very thin premise, the return of the Fuddermans is essential. Is Yeah, I agree. Dick, Dick Mill, I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't, this movie doesn't have any sequels beyond this point. Maybe it will one day, but I mean, I, it's unimaginable without Dick Miller. And he goes through, I mean, like, he, and I was he just does develop say, somewhat in this movie because he's confronting all his kind of past war trauma. All his demons, yeah, all his PTSD based on thinking he was crazy. And I was also going to say there's a moment where, um, you know, the, the Tony Randall smart gremlin lets a, a bat gremlin loose. Which also, by the way, creates just the Batman logo in a window when he does escape through a window. But he starts, you know, uh, Dick Miller, Murray uh, Futterman does yeah. fight this thing. And you can see clearly that this is one of those first instances of it's not green screen, but like the green screen equ equivalent of that time. Yeah. Where he has to fight something that's not there. And if you look at his eyes, <laughs> his eyes are exactly on point yeah. to where the creature is whenever they're fighting. He, I mean, it's like the most remarkable piece of acting. He's he's like an anchor. He's like a, a fixed point. Yeah. That the movie, and we, you know, they rush them in. It's like, oh, I got a reunion of my wartime buddies. Oh, we'll go to a hotel. It's like, it's like. It's like, yeah, I know they shouldn't be here, but I'm so glad they're here. Right, yeah. So, so glad so, they're here. So, so glad. It is, it is interesting how they manage. And, you know, we haven't, we haven't even talked about Gizmo here. And uh, you know what? As far as, I mean, this is, this is one point where even Joe Dante is like, we don't mess with this. Mogwai will do, Gizmo will do exactly the same thing he did in the first movie. Right. 
we're not going to tamper with this. We're going to, you know, we're just going to work on the puppet. We're going to make the puppet somehow even cuter than it was in the original movie, <laughs> which I did not think was conceptually possible. And yet it is. And yet it is. I yeah, also I mean, had a note that... mainly because he walks and dances, perhaps. But I just, you know, like, I've I've just bowled over by the, the uh, how adorable that character is. And I, I, I like the fact that they, I mean, there's lots of reasons why they went with Rambo as his kind of, like, persona this time. Mm-hmm. But they even have a line which makes me think it's almost sort of thematically character justified. Where they said they just pushed him too, too far, far this time. right? <laughs> and there's a kind of like you see you see Mogwai's doing a little kind of uh, like a kind of PTSD thing with his with his with his paws his head. and like, like hand up. I I like, also I'm, I'm sold. I'm I sold. find it interesting too that in both movies, I have a note here that says despite the fact that Gizmo the Mogwai is so cute and cuddly and kind and generous and nice he always uh, when he gets wet produces some real assholes yeah so somewhere inside of him must be a <laughs> bit pretty big dick <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's like douche man right yeah they're like they're, the gremlins are like his douche man <laughs> yeah so i think i mean one but what some we were talking about returning cast members and something which i again, I'd forgotten happened and was really surprised and shocked, and I think it's deliberate, is how they get rid of Mr. Wing. Of, he of, dies on the news. Of who? Mr. Wing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He dies on the news. Right. Not on screen. Not on screen. He coughs a little, and he's gone. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was like Jaws the Revenge level of... You're going to do that to a major franchise character in the first few minutes of the movie and not even put it on screen? Mm-hmm. Whoa, that is balls. I'll tell you what... I mean, the movie, the movie can't happen without that. No, right. But it does have that kind of feeling of, the actor didn't die, did he? Because I feel bad if that... No. I hope not. I hope not as well, because... You're a real like asshole if he did. ...from outer space when Bela Lugosi goes off screen and then you hear that car crash right. until because Bela Lugosi filmed one scene and died. Yeah, if he, but I don't think that's what's going if on If he here. is dead... But it feels like that. If he if he was dead, then you're a big asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell e- you, even if he didn't. I'll, yeah, right. Yeah. You're an asshole either way. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell yeah, you the, the joke one. that I forgot that made me laugh out loud was when uh, Billy Peltzer gets knocked on the head and strapped into the dentist chair and a gremlin's going to drill his tooth and the gremlin says, is it safe? Is it oh. safe? There's the there's the Wizard of Oz witch melting. There's a whole Busby Berkeley musical number. There is nothing this movie won't do in its referentialness to movies. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's, that's pretty clear. I mean, in that Key and Peele sketch, they make a big deal of Hulk Hogan breaking the fourth wall, mm-hmm. which is true, but let's face it, that wall is pretty. He's just tipping over a brick at the bottom of that wall that's already been yeah. knocked over. By that, this point. movie starts with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny speaking directly to us, so all bets are off. This, I mean, this for for those of you who don't know, Hulk Hogan 
talks talks to the movie in a movie theater. Yeah, right. After the movie has stopped. Well, this is one thing where actually this was a very common practice in the 80s. Monty Python's The Meaning of Life has a similar uh-huh. moment where they just there's a break in the middle of the film and lots of weird stuff happens that's directed out to the audience. You also kind of have so it in... Um... It was something that filmmakers were playing with at the time. Yeah. I think it's just the Hulk Hogan-ness of it that stands out, not... The rest of it fits perfectly into this movie. The Gremlins doing shadow puppets right. is, you know, that's that's... Like you say, that's what we get from the very first seconds of the movie. You got Tony Randall. You've got, we. you know, I want to get back. You know, we're running out of time, but I, I do want to, like, just shout out to Tony Randall as Smart Gremlin. My, favorites, my favorite moment in the whole movie when I first saw it, I remember, is you have, he's changed, so he's smart, but he's still a gremlin. So when he's doing the interview with Grandpa Munster... Yes. Or basically Grandpa Munster. And he shoots that gremlin in the face. And he says, now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no way civilized. To me, is just the most magical moment. It's so great. Uh, you know. Uh, my, my feeling about the, to- I mean, obviously the Tony Randall performance is, is helpful here. But yeah, that both that and the flying bat gargoyle gremlin are things that if you would make fun of in a sequel, and indeed that's exactly what Key and Peele make fun of, uh-huh. but the way they come about in the context of the movie is almost, except, you know, almost kind of makes it all right. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's sort of like, okay, so he took this genetic juice stuff. And he's smart. That that's how they got the wings and that's how he's talking. Right. Okay. This is why this one's a vegetable patch. Right. Um... <laughs> And it's like, but I, I do think, you know, there's there's a limit. And maybe the limit is not only a Japanese man or Japanese-American, he seems to speak with an American accent, who is obsessed with taking photographs, which is, you know, classic racist trope of this time. Of course. But at one point he says, I can work a camera I am a camera. Yeah, right. So he's <laughs> they they've gone one step beyond the racist stereotype and made a Japanese person a human camera. Right. It's like it's like maybe when it's tied up with that abhorrent racism, that's not okay. But it's sort of not unexpected in this movie. Like the anarchy of it. Almost sells it. It doesn't because it's in line because with the it's racist. racist trope. Yeah, but, <laughs> right. And then, and my heart dropped when I saw it because I knew I'd have to take it down. But then you have the added fact that that actor uh, is Long Duck Dong from Sixteen Candles, and so you don't like. I there's a part of me that is like, is that purposeful? Yeah. Just to bring that. It's got to be character back. You know what I mean? Well, it's got to be with all the other nonsense. And callbacks well, and I think I think that's probably purposeful. He also, I mean, this this guy, I uh, this guy suffered for his art. This guy was cast as Japanese chorus with camera in so many sitcoms and movies. Yeah, right. But you know, I'm, I'm like, well, maybe maybe that's the limit. Um, I also want you know, like how 
how close is this movie to becoming an airplane style spoof of the you know what this yeah. is this what airplane is to airport or what blazing saddles is to Rio Bravo or you know Spaceballs is to Star Wars yeah and I don't know if it quite gets there there's moments when it does it really pushes the line but it, it always just underplays that I don't but know what do you think but 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 it's still attached to its narrative yeah of making sure these creatures don't get out into the world and that you know that whole part of the narrative That's is right. still stuck too much to go to that length i think i think i, I agree know. with you maybe that is the difference but there were t- when i was watching Lennon malton and they're holding up the video of gremlins and he you know he's holding up a vhs of yeah. gremlins i'm like this is space balls we're in space balls yeah uh, well and but so then but there is there is jeopardy and there are stakes and the, right. uh, yeah, go yeah. beyond that yeah well, so I just, you know, we're out of time. So I'll also just say, in closing, I think what this movie is trying to say was it was a little prophetic because one of the last shots you see is them leaving the building and there's the C from the clamp logo yeah. that is sort of like squishing the earth. Like mm. the earth is flattening in this stone structure or, or, you know, iron structure that's outside of the building, which is sort of a metaphor for what's happening in our world right now. The Trump character and his business is sort of squishing the world. They should probably, in closing also, they, if they haven't played the Clamp Network... End of the World End of the World video. If they haven't already done that in 2020, it's probably time to put it on. It's coming soon, everyone. Once again, we leave on a downer. Thanks. For... Depending on your point of view. <laughs> right, Cl- right. Clamp was very inspired by that video. It motivated <laughs> him to do good things. To tears. All right, that's it for Gremlins 2, the new batch. I mean, we, you know, there's nothing left to say. If you have uh, a comment, please let us know at everythingsequel at Gmail or find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram and Twitter. That's it for Tom Stewart. I'm Michael Schantz. We're going to be catching you on the flip side when we talk about Young Guns 2 coming up next. Take care, everybody.